You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Thanks, brother. Dude, great job with those names. I've, uh, I've titled this sermon, The Top 10 Names to Name Your Kid for 2021. Um, just kidding. Uh, here in Baltimore in 1983, a middle schooler was murdered walking outside uh, just over his basketball jacket. And three teenagers between the age, ages of 16 and 17 were convicted, tried, and sentenced to life in prison. And just over a year ago, there's actually this new evidence that came out that, exonif- or, um, that freed these three men because another killer was convicted, showing that those three didn't do it. So these three teenagers, that are now middle-aged men, were all of a sudden set free. Their names were Allred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart. They spent 36 long years in prison, wrongfully convicted for murder, and in what they said was going through hell for 36 years. 36 years of shame, a small prison cell, watching the lives of their loved ones just go by as they sat stagnant for decades in a cell. They were given some money when they got out, like, as a, we're sorry, you know, from the city, right? But, I mean, really, there's nothing that can really compensate for four decades of being in prison, right? The marriages they could have had, the kids they could have had and seen grow up, the impact they could have made in the world. It was four decades that were gone. And, and we hear stories like this, and they can be a gut punch to us, Right? Why? Because there's a desire in each one of us for for justice, for rightness. There's something to our core that revolts when we see injustice or wrong and and yearns for what is right. And we, we live in a world today that's, I think, obsessed with this question, or these two questions. What is right, and how do I make right what's been done wrong? You see it all over the place. You see it in the the passion and polarization of our politics. You see it in the the tiffs you have with your friend or with your spouse. We see it in your squabbles at work. We see it in the movies and the podcasts and the shows that we love. When I first moved here, you guys probably remember, I think it was a top uh, number one podcast. It's called Serial. It was following the story here in Baltimore of someone that may have been wrongfully convicted for murder. It's like addicting, right? Or, uh, or my favorite, and I, or one of my favorites, uh, throwback to the 90s movie, Shawshank Redemption. I think one of the best movies out there, honestly. It's solid. Uh, but it's, it's all about, it, the reason it's so good, it's about this guy that got wrongly convicted for murder and escapes. Justice is found. And today, in our unique day, a leader can be undone by a tweet he had 10 years ago. Right or wrong, this information-driven, social media-informed culture has, uh, I think, raised the bar of judgment against the unjust or the wrong, or what's been deemed unjust and wrong. And yet, in our obsession for what is right, there's so much evidence and frustration around justice we can't seem to escape. Because our, our court systems don't always make the right convictions, do they? 
As we mentioned in our recent example, criminals are not always caught. Innocent people go to prison. You can still get pinned with wrong even after explaining yourself. When you were a kid, if you hit the, the kid back that hit you first, you were the one that got caught, right? The second kid always gets caught. They're not never the first one. We're a people so passionate for justice, but also deeply flawed in our ability to actually bring about what's right. And it's this longing that we have, it's this conflict that's met and talked about in our sermon text this morning. In a world of frustrated justice, God's appointed King David steps in to meet each of our longings for equity. Uh, Here's just the big idea I want us to kind of collectively wrap ourselves around this morning, and it's this. The justice that you long for is found in God's appointed king. The justice each of you long for is only found in God's appointed king. I want to pause and just pray for our time before we jump into seeing how God has revealed that to us. Oh, Father, we, we cling to your truth this morning, and I cling to your truth this morning that we find in Timothy that, that all of your word is, is breathed out. It's every piece of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training of your people. That the man and woman of God would be competent and equipped for every good work. And so that's what we're asking you to come in and do now. We believe in your Holy Spirit who does the work of application and enlightening the text and changing our hearts. And God, we ask now that you and I ask that you would be in the driver's seat. I'm just, I just want to be along for the ride over here as we hear from you. We hear from the God who has revealed himself, who speaks to his people. So great. So would we, uh, would we just hear you speak now, each of us together, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So I just want to give a, a quick summary of the story uh, as before we kind of get into the, the king's justice here. Last week, if you were here with us, we encountered some like bloody Braveheart type uh, encounters between two, uh, two different groups. This dwindling kingdom of, of uh, King Saul who has died and kind of the rising king David who God has appointed to be king over Israel. And Saul's kind of scaredy cat son, his name is Ishbosheth, um, is the temporary ruler of this northern kingdom and David's here in the south in the southern kingdom. So uh, the northern kingdom last week, his top, the top general got killed and has been killed by David's men. And this is the situation we come into in verse 1. This is what verse 1 says. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and Israel was dismayed. So all of northern Israel, they're, they're paralyzed with discouragement. Maybe that's how some of you feel coming this morning after the Ravens lost last night. Sore subject. And what inevitably happens when there's severe discouragement around. People start jumping ship, right? So in this case, these two, um, these two brothers, these two scrubs really, um, they decide that they're going to defect to the winning side. And so to David's kingdom. But they can't just stroll over the border. They need to come with a prize or something to prove their loyalty. And so what better way to do that than to kill the, David's rival king and bring his head across the border? And that's what they do. They sneak into Ishbosheth's house in verse 7. They come into the house. He lays on his bed in the bedroom. They struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. 
So Ishbosheth, and he is just on a siesta, minding his own business in his house, and these manly men come in and take his life, and they take his head, and they go south about 60 miles across the border to David. And in the world's estimation, these guys had a lot of reason to be confident, right? They're rolling in David's palace with proof that they have solidified his rule, ending his rival kingship, so they could bring a unified Israel together. So these guys are like, man, we're getting a party in our honor tonight. We're getting a special treatment. And they finally get to David's place, and this is what they say, verse 8. Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord and the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. And this is where we see the first aspect of the king's justice. The king's justice cuts to the heart. Cuts to the heart. So remember, God, God promised David a long time ago that he was, when he was just 16 years old, when he was just a teenager, that he's going to be king over Israel. He's almost 37 now. He's been waiting two decades for this to come to a reality. And so these two brothers, they, they latch onto that. They say, hey man, man, God's finally given you the promise that he, that he, uh, that he spoke to you. And, and we just, you know, humbly happen to be the mighty tools that God has used to bring that about. So... The Lord, a.k.a. us, have come in to deliver the kingdom for you. You're welcome. These bold and courageous men, they, they murder what David claims is a righteous man taking a nap. And then use this language as if they're carrying out God's will. They come in with, the with the blood on their hands, but theology on their lips. Thinking the latter is going to sanitize the former. And in tipping their hats with, to God with just a little Bible talk, they think they can manipulate and justify their actions with that God talk. But the just king sees through their theological camouflage. All he sees is an evil act, murder of the righteous. And unfortunately, I did not have to think very hard to think about world history and find relevant examples of where evil acts have been justified in God's name, camouflaged as Bible talk. In Jesus' days, it was the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. They looked fancy on the outside, but they were full of death inside. The Crusades were a justified war by the Roman Catholic Church, saying it was God's work and God's mission. American slavery was justified by a misapplication of the Bible. Husbands dominating their spouses with a misapplication of God's word. Some megachurch pastors justifying a G6 for the mission. Riders storming the Capitol with Jesus signs and Jesus music playing in the background. Or whole Christian denominations just abandoning God's standard for sexuality or morality under the guise of vague theological arguments. And I could keep going with examples, and I'm sure you could too. And it's so important for us to remember, friends, that just because something sounds Christian doesn't mean it is. Just because God's name is invoked does not mean God is involved. And so much immeasurable, man, just damage and hurt has done, have been done to people supposedly in the name of God, hasn't it? And worst of all, these examples, they muddy a picture of God's character that the world so desperately needs to see. This isn't just 
other people. Sadly, you and I are all too tempted and have the tendency to bring in, invoke God's blessing on what's wrong. Our hearts are deceptive beyond our wildest nightmares. Jeremiah, he says, uh, the, the heart is deceptive beyond anything. It's without cure. Our hearts can be so wicked, we even try to, to bring in God's word or God's blessing or some Christianese and manipulate them to serve our own purposes. Some of the ones I've seen and some of the ones I can do is I can camouflage greed as stewardship. We can justify the fear of sharing Christ as just really good relational evangelism or sharing the gospel with our actions. We can manipulate gospel and slander and bring them forward as group prayer requests. We can twist passivity and laziness and prayerlessness and attribute it to resting in God's sovereignty. We can couch being a jerk as speaking the truth in love. Hey, bro, you, you suck. I love you. I was speaking the truth in love. But you're awful. And so this question glares at us, doesn't it? How can we ensure we're not camouflaging our wrong with theological jargon? King David gives us uh, at least a couple suggestions here. I want to point out two. First, he, we see in this text he's regularly rejoicing in his Redeemer. Listen to how David responds to his two murdering brothers. In uh, verse 9, he says, As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life out of every adversity. That's how he starts, verse 9. Notice, I think on the screen, I have a comparison of these two verses from what the brothers The brothers say, The Lord's avenged my Lord the King this day. And, and this is David says, As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life. So the brothers, they're trying to convince David subtly, hey, we're, we're kind of your avengers, right? But David, he's not confused by these phony or kind of pseudo avengers because his eyes are on his daily redeemer. And his rehearsing of the gratitude for his redeemer in his life actually kills his idolistic tendencies. And our tendency to cover up schemes with Christian wrapping paper are torn away with the gratitude towards our Redeemer. Because humble gratitude always kills our deceptive idols. I'm uh, reminded of a story that I'm very encouraged by, um, by a guy, he's a church father named Polycarp. Another great name for your kid. Um, in 155 AD... He was brought before the Roman authorities, and he was demanded that he uh, call Caesar Lord and burn incense to him. The Romans threatened to feed him to wild animals and then burn him alive, or maybe not alive, I'm not sure, unless he would curse Christ. And I love his response. This is what he says. It's an old guy. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king who has saved me? Polycarp's deep gratitude for his redeemer that he's been rehearsing for 86 years of his life protected him from doing wrong, from cursing the temptation to curse Jesus under threat. The blessing he already had in Christ far outweighed any threat of torture he could ever have. And so it is with us that the blessing of our Redeemer, of Jesus, has given us as far outweighs any threat or any temptation of good or gain that could tempt us to stray away to do wrong. So as we rehearse the Redeemer's deep love and grace and kindness to you, the temptation fades. 
rejoice in our Redeemer. Secondly, we can treasure God's counsel. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but David actually wrote a ton of the Psalms. And there's a lot of themes through the Psalms, but one of those is just a deep love for God's Word. Uh, David was known for treasuring God's Word. Just an example, in Psalm 119, he says, he doesn't say, he sings. These are songs. Oh, how I, I'm not going to sing for you, but I'm going I'm to read it. Oh, how I love your law. It's the meditation all the day. I think about your word every day, all day. And he treasures God's word, not because he wants a Ph.D. in theology, because, but because he treasures knowing God. Just like a new wife would treasure love letters from her husband, David treasures God's word. And our God, He is the standard for justice. So the more we know Him, the more we know what is right. I love how um, theologian Wayne Grudem describes God's righteousness or God's justice. Uh, in the Bible, righteousness and justice are almost interchangeable words. This is what he says. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is Himself the final standard for what is right. This is what he's saying. He said, the, the person of God is, is the final and only true standard for what is right. The more we know him, the more we know what is right in the world. And so that big question that our culture is always asking, what is right? What's the answer? It's the answer to how do we know what is right is know God. Know Jesus. Get to know him through his word. And so we can be like this example of, of these examples of Christians I love. They're bringing Christians in Acts 17. When they actually, when they heard a claim made about God or about Christ, they actually went back to their Bibles and said, let me see if it's in here. Let me see if it's in the Bible. They opened it up and saw if it was true. The apostle Paul was teaching them. And they said, well, let me go. Let me go look back to my Bible to see if it's true. You can't, wherever they heard a claim about God, they searched it out. They didn't take Paul at his word. They took God at his word. And so we don't rely solely on a pastor or a teacher or a charismatic speaker, although they can be helpful. We can be in awe this morning of the perfect king's justice that cuts to the heart. Because when we look at Jesus, we see when no one else saw through the theological jargon of the Pharisees, Jesus called them hypocrites and blind guides. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus with all his wealth and all his good works, Jesus ministered to his pride and his greed. And when you and I attempt to cover our sin with Christian ease, Jesus isn't deceived, thankfully. He convicts and he ministers us just as we need, just as the great physician would and can. God's the, the king cuts through the heart and deals justly. That's point one. Secondly, on God's justice, the king's justice, it's consistent. It's consistent. I mean, his long wait to become king. David endured murder attempts, uh, intense discouragement, and a lot more waiting for this day to come. And so put yourself in, in David's sandals and his tunic. Or tunic. There were tunics. Um, the last guy standing in the way to God's promise in your life has been done away with. It's finally happening after two decades. It's here. The means to get there were a little shady, but that's, that's okay. We, we made it, right? We got to the end. And, and we laugh, but man, I mean, I could totally see myself doing that, right? Just kind of looking the other way, if I was David. Couldn't you? Just kind of look the other way. Man, 
we, God's promises came true. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party tonight. But he doesn't. David does what's righteous, even when it could hurt him. He honors his rival, and he actually shames those that are there to try to help him. And this isn't just a one-time thing. He does this over and over again. And in um, verses 10 and 11, he recounts a time recently where he has done this. This is what he says in 10 and 11. This is David. He says, When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his house on his bed shall I not now require his blood of your hand and destroy you from the earth. So he's referring back to, if you were with us, the first part of 2 Samuel. A messenger came to tell David that King Saul had been, uh, the, the one that was standing in David's way had been killed. And uh, a little side note, oh yeah, and by the way, I, I kind of helped finish him off for you. Kind of like these two brothers are doing too. And even though this messenger's news is helping David, it doesn't stop David from dispensing justice to this lying messenger. And so David tells these two brothers, like, hey, you remember that, that guy? He did a lot less. So if I'm doing justice to this, this dude, y'all are getting the hammer, right? You guys are getting it. He's just and consistent to his word. And we have, and we'll see often in David's life, that he's going to choose rightness. Even though it goes against the world's expectations, it goes against the things that would help him, and he goes against some of his closest friends, suggesting him do the opposite. I love it, because David's justice can't be bought with a crown. It's not for sale. And man, how the world needs a movement of Christians whose ethics can't be bought at any price. A people where no amount of gain or threat of, uh, threat of harm would deter us from doing what is right in God's eyes. And the world desperately, desperately needs godly men and women whose integrity can't be bought with stuff or pleasure or experience. Men who will stand their ground and proclaim Jesus no matter the consequences. And women who will give themselves to serve and free the needy no matter what the cost. And it's, it's so encouraging when I see brothers and sisters doing that. This this week, uh, my best friend growing up, he would hate it if he watches and I told the story, but hopefully he's not watching. Um, Man, it's my best friend growing up, and um, man, he, he's got a pretty, pretty balling job, and found out that uh, there were some, uh, some shady things going on behind the scenes that he did not know about. He found them out, and he had a question. He said, I can, I can quit my job because I found these things out, or I can just kind of look the other way. Everything's going pretty well. I'm providing for my family. Just kind of, it's just kind of some stuff, some technicalities over here to the side. And I was so encouraged because in his desire for rightness and looking at God and his justice and rightness, he said, no, I, I can't do that. I can't look the other way. I have to call this out. I have to quit. And even though he didn't know where his paycheck was going to come from, the next week, he still did it. And man, what an encouragement to me to see brothers and sisters doing that, not having their integrity for sale at any price. And yet with all these great examples, David messed up. We messed up. He's in, he is going to be inconsistent. We'll see. And we definitely will be too. David's shining now, but um, you, many of you know the story. But we're going to get into some chapters in the future where, where David does some crazy sins. I mean, stuff that you would like get thrown in prison for now. And we can be so inconsistent of our own application of justice. I, um, I see this in kids all the time. My kids and other kids too. 
Man, you know when a kid, like, uh, they have a toy stolen? They're like, Mom, Dad, did you see that? They took the toy, like, lay the hammer, justice, like, bring justice to me. Right? But what if, um, what if they steal the toy? Right? Mom, but I just, I just needed it, or, or they, they just had their time, or it was my turn now. Right? And uh, I've been, Jen and I have been really lashing onto this parenting um, truth that we are much more like our kids than not like our kids. And I see myself and my kids in that way all the time. And so I see there's only one king that's consistently, that's reliably just. The true king always did right no matter what it cost him. Jesus loved the unlovable when it was unpopular. He, he gave a loving touch to the disease. In today's day, he may have ministered to the people in the COVID ICU unit. He spoke the truth and love when it made people angry. He told them he was the great I am coming to save them, even though it made them want to throw them off a cliff. And he condemned evil wherever he saw it. He turned over the tables of corruption, even though it was going to get him crucified. We don't put our hope in anyone else's consistency. Not a politician, not a pastor, not a judge, not a celebrity. No one. If you look to them to have the king's consistency, you will be let down again and again and again. But the consistency of the king's justice is also a problem for us. Isn't it? Man, we get pumped for justice. Being made right. But how much? How much do we want? Man, we want justice towards the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world, towards the, uh, the justice against sex trafficking and towards crooked politics, and that's good. We should want that. But what about when it comes to us? Do we want the king's justice for our line? Or for the, the gossip and the slander that just slipped out? Do we want justice for the lust we struggle with when no one else sees? When it comes to ourselves, we quickly realize that God's perfect, consistent justice causes a dilemma for us. In his uh, great book, Knowledge of the Holy, its author, A.W. Tozer, he talks about this conflict that comes up with God's consistent justice. This is what he says. Listen, this is well put. He says, when infinite equity encountered our chronic and willing iniquity, there was violence. There was a violent war between the two, a war in which God won and must always win. Listen, here's what he's saying. He's saying, despite God's deep, deep love for the people he created, God, God cannot in his character abandon justice towards wickedness and brokenness and sin in us. To the very core of who God is, he must punish evil. He must do right. And that's good. We should want that. And I think about this, I'm like, man, we are a messed up bunch. The, the same justice we long for is the same justice that would actually condemn us. And friends, this is what makes the gospel as our only hope and such a sweet hope. Listen to how Tozer continues. He says, but when a penitent sinner cast himself upon Christ for salvation, the moral situation is reversed. Justice confronts the changed situation and pronounces the believing man or woman just. 
So he's saying, Jesus didn't just take your punishment for your wrong, but the king who lived his perfect, just, righteous life hands over his just reputation to you. It says, have it. This is your reputation before the Father. This is what Paul means in Romans when he says that, uh, those, that Jesus is both the just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is how we come to God confident. He doesn't overlook justice and just like look to the side or, or just kind of give you a freebie to, to accept you in as his kids. Because of Jesus, you are just, you are right, you are pure, you are holy, you are welcomed into his, as his kids forever. Because of his justice. So we can come to Jesus with all of our inconsistencies, our jacked up moral compasses. And He takes us. He presents us to the Father as ones with His consistency and His reputation. Amen. What good news this is. This shakes off our shame before God. It gets rid of our guilt before Him. Even this week, as I just even have been thinking about my own inconsistencies, my own self-centered tendencies, my own looking the other ways at times. It's been good to reestablish myself in this truth of where I stand and what Jesus has done and how he's brought me in pure, holy, justified before him. The king's justice is consistent. Thirdly and lastly, the king's justice provides hope for God's people. It's hope for God's people. Uh, the end of the story, it's a, it's a gruesome one. It says uh, in verse 12, And David commanded his young men, they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So David goes to these guys, and he has their hands and their feet cut off to, to shame them for their evil act. And this is kind of a rated R chapter, as there are many chapters in the Bible, but it also gives God's people hope. Because Israel, they were longing for a king that would always do right. A king who would justly and consistently cut to the heart. Uh, just before the book of Samuel was the book of Judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges says this. It says, in those days, this is Israel, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a really interesting phrase because as, uh, as current Westerners in our individualistic society, man, we hear that and we're like, man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I get to do whatever I want. I get to make my own standard of what is right and wrong and no one's going to stop me. No one's going to tell me what to do. That's freedom right there. I get to define my own right and wrong. But God meant that as bad news. There was no consistent standard of right and wrong and no one to carry out justice. And justice was all over the place and there was no one to call it out. No one to enforce good. In reality, that's a nightmare, right? That's like um, your favorite dystopian movie or show, maybe like The Walking Dead, right? The appointed king's consistent judgment, justice that cuts to the heart is, is actually good news for God's people. And King David's justice for us this morning is just a small picture, an incomplete picture, but it points us to King Jesus' perfect and coming justice. 
I, uh, I can't do a, a Samuel sermon without my boy Dale Ralph Davis getting in here. This is what he says, a great point about Jesus' coming justice. Listen to how he says it about this text. He says, every bit of micro-justice enacted under David's regime should be taken as a foregleam to the macro-justice that David's promised descendant will enforce through the earth in his own time. He's saying, listen, he's saying, David's justice here, it's just a glimmer. It's just a glimmer compared to the bright sunshine of Jesus' coming justice. The hope preached to us throughout the Bible is that Jesus didn't just come as a sacrificial land to take away our sins, although that's great news, but he's preparing to come back as a ruling lion. And in that day, every cry for justice will be answered and far more fully and finally than we can in this age. We will put our hands over our mouths as the risen, omnipotent king and lamb exacts perfect justice and perfect righteousness with no excess, with no compromise. No wrong will go unaddressed. No evil is going to be overlooked. And for God's people, Jesus coming to judge rightly is the good news our souls are longing for. Because with our eyes on our day, Christians can have peace. If you've been slandered or misrepresented, we can look to the day where King Jesus is going to bring every single thing to light. If you've been taken advantage of by a coworker or a friend or a boss... You can hope in the day where Jesus will exalt the humble and lay low the proud. If you've been disenfranchised for talking about Jesus, you can look to the day where Jesus himself is going to come and wipe away every tear and, and give you a reward, eternal reward. So church, it's an invitation for us to, to latch our eyes of faith onto the day where our King will come to make everything right and rest. Have peace. But for those outside of Christ, the return of the king is terrifying news. God's word is clear. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, Every one of us must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single person. All your wrong, all your inconsistency, all your injustice will be laid out and addressed before the king whose justice is always consistent and always cuts to the heart. And most uh, world religions, most worldviews operate like these two wicked brothers in the story. We bring our, our good works, we bring our kind of twisted, mixed intentions to a perfect God and think he'll be impressed. But if that's what you're bringing to the king, he's going to respond like David. He'll see your stuff for what it is. He'll see your good stuff as just what the Bible calls filthy rags. He'll see your best stuff for what it is. Just filthy rags to be thrown in the fire along with you forever. And if you weren't in Christ, this is terrifying news. Of the coming judgment. But it's not meant to be the end game. It's meant to jolt you awake. Be a loving warning. Because the king doesn't desire your punishment. The king gives you a better option. Not for you to shoulder your sin. But for him to shoulder your sin. And that's the work that's done at the cross. The wrath of God against.
commits your sin, it will crush someone. It will crush you or it will crush Jesus. And the just king stands inviting you, let your sin, the wrath for your sin, crush me so you can have my justice. You can have my rightness. You can have my purity before the God. He's the just and the merciful king. And it's our invitation that you would join those, join us who are in Christ to marvel together as he comes to enact perfect justice. And friends, it's good news in a world of evil like ours that justice, full and final, perfect and complete, is coming. That justice has a name. Its name is Jesus. And it's sweet news to be hidden in Him. Let's pray and thank Him for that. Father, we are so aware of the dilemma our sin creates. You've geared our souls to want perfect justice, but also we can't stand up to it. And God, that's why we're so thankful for the gospel this morning. We're so thankful that Jesus is always just, but he also is merciful and came to be our justifier. That we don't have to just crawl or squabble or, or kind of come with our heads laid low to you. But we come to you in the name of Jesus, trusting confidently in his perfect work that we're declared before the Father just and righteous. Not by anything we've done, but because the work of the Savior, the work of the perfect King, has been given on our account. What a wealth that we celebrate. God, would that transform every part of who we are? Would it transform uh, our love of doing right and doing justice in our everyday this week? May it drive us to ask for forgiveness from you and from others. Would it drive us to speak up for those that have uh, no voice or small voice? That, are, that, are, that have experienced injustice. And God, more than anything, I just pray that we and all of you, would we regularly rehearse how you've redeemed us and saved us? Would you do that in our hearts right now as we sing and take the table? God, we love you. We marvel at the cross where God's justice was perfectly enacted on our sin. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.